I think that if anyone is going to come back to the theater now that is that had never been a theater goer or that has sort of like left their sort of like theater going behind pre-pandemic, those folks are going to come back because there's something that they have never seen before that is being offered to them. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be hearing from theater director and playwright Shayok Michel Chowdhury. A year ago, the much-admired off-Broadway company Soho Rep premiered Misha's play titled Public Obscenities. It opened to the kind of glowing reviews and enthusiastic audience responses a writer could only dream of. Twelve months later, the production is enjoying its third remount in Brooklyn at Theatre for a New Audience, after a very successful run at Washington, D.C.'s Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company. Now, sure, for a production of a world premiere play to be remounted three times in one year is extraordinary, but not unheard of. What does make it particularly remarkable in this case, though, is that there's nothing about the play that screams guaranteed surefire hit. For one thing, with its large cast, believe it or not, in today's American theater, a cast of seven is considered large. Yeah, I know. And with its multimedia elements, it is not cheap to produce. Then also, it is bilingual, partly in English, partly in the playwright's native Bangla. Now, granted, Bangla is the sixth most spoken native language in the world, thank you Wikipedia, but it is not a language familiar to most Americans. Plus, though sections of the play in which Bangla is spoken are supertitled, there are other scenes without any translations at all. Also, the play is very queer. It follows an Indian-American PhD candidate as he returns with his black American boyfriend to a family home in Kolkata, India. There he plans to interview sexual minorities for his dissertation. The play is therefore very frank about sexuality and features two non-gender conforming characters. But despite these details, or maybe exactly because of them, the play is an unqualified hit. Just a few days after I recorded this interview, Misha won an Obie for his direction of the play, This after the play's cast received a 2023 Drama Desk Award for Best Ensemble. I started our interview by asking Misha to describe how he set out to write this play with all its myriad complications. I started writing the piece under the auspices of this residency that Soho Rep had invented in the thick of the pandemic called Project Number One. Um, And so they were paying me and seven other artists to be on salary for a full year just to work on a project of our choosing and be in thought partnership with the organization. And so I was- Wow, hold on. I, that's that's yep. incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like literally- Wait, I, want, I, I want to dig down into this. So how please. how are you approached? Because I think that's incredible. Um, I mean, it literally is- like I mean, do you think you would have been able to create this play without- No, no, kind of no, absolutely not. Not even like been able to. It wouldn't even have- The circumstances of that residency were what allowed me to even like imagine 
sitting and writing a play. I'm, you know, I'm a director by training. I wouldn't even have thought to sit and write this play if somebody hadn't said, you have a whole year to sit and write a play um, and we're going to pay you a salary and benefits to do it, which was not so. I mean, they like the way in which they sort of completely altered the way I thought of myself as an artist just by sort of valuing me and my time. That's what gave me the sort of ambition and confidence and and gift of time to did you to have even to think pitch something to, to them or they just no, said here no, we go no, we're no. going to support you for it was there was no kind of it was just sarah and Merope and cynthia like i and i'd been in relationship with the theater and they picked eight artists and not even you know the eight artists that they picked weren't traditionally generative artists but it wasn't like oh here we are picking eight artists to commission works that we're going to see at our theater, there were two actors, two designers, two directors, two playwrights. It was just an open invitation to sort of come into this relationship with the theater and be on staff for a year and be in thought partnership with them and work on a thing. And it wasn't, there wasn't even any expectation that the thing that we were working on be any kind of sort of like theatrical product in the traditional sense. I'm the only one who sort of like wrote a good old fashioned play. Um, Cause I was like, when else am I going to have this opportunity to get paid to write a good old fashioned play? But it was because of that. And so the entire, the genesis of the play is completely tethered to that residency and that relationship. I wrote, you know, the first couple of pages and sent those pages to the directors at Soho Rep and I was sort of using them as accountability buddies while I was writing. Um, and very early on, they sort of decided to make a commitment to commission and produce the play just from seeing a few pages of it, which meant that I had a sense of sort of security or like a home for the play from the very beginning. So you knew it was going to be largely bilingual from the start? Yes. I mean, I wrote the first scene of the play first, and it felt to me as though I would only allow it to be produced if it could. There was no way I was going to make the play happen without being super rigorous about the sort of language and casting concerns that sort of make the play possible. I had a lot of doubt throughout um, that there was any way that we were going to be able to make this happen. I was pretty certain that we would have to bring actors in from India and sponsor visas. Uh, I was just sort of like, if you're going to produce this play, you have to commit to the authenticity of the sort of like language considerations that are so embedded into the story. So you must have started in on casting discussions long before another playwright. Yeah. So we did like a, you know, it was a year and a half long national casting search. We um, worked with TBD casting and there was an initial sort of casting round that happened for a sort of like radio play version of the first act that we did to sort of like as a capstone to that that first year residency that I did at Soho Rep. And that, you know, it really was like we were just like turning over every stone everywhere that we possibly could, like reaching out on a super sort of grassroots kind of community way, um, reaching out to all kinds of folks that do sort of community theater or amateur Bengali theater and self tapes from 
young actors who were still in college or graduating from college and tapping into like all of my own sort of community relationships. And the fact that, you know, like we have found this cast is to me still the sort of greatest uh, sort of marvel uh, because we have, you know, like these are, this is a cast of Bengali folks who sort of represent the entire constellation of what it means to be Bengali, we have, uh, it's a super intergenerational cast, folks who were born and raised in Bangladesh or in India, and folks who were born and raised here. There are queer and trans and non-binary actors in the cast. There are, um, I already mentioned, sort of like Bangladeshi versus West Bengali actors. There, It's just like this, uh, and, and each of those sort of considerations are uh, sort of crucial to the to the storytelling. And these actors are so exquisite and none of them um, have really had, almost none of them have had the opportunity to work in this particular way before, to run a show for the better part of a year. For eight shows a week, right? Yeah, eight shows a week here in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's wild. And everyone, you know, now they're all Drama Desk award-winning actors, which is nuts and so deserved. That is is maybe what I'm most proud of, that the play sort of is sort of proving that there are, that there are artists out there who are so immensely talented that can sort of like step into a sort of meaty, juicy, rich role like this if one is written for, you know, their sort of particular concerns and considerations. And that's not why I was writing the play, but it is a kind of like collateral effect that I feel so amazed by. I want to talk about writing a bilingual play. In in when I used to work in the theater, we did occasionally produce bilingual plays that were partly Spanish, partly in English. Sure, yeah. And um, I found this is based just on my anecdotal kind of observations that so many of our English speaking audiences were cowed a bit and uncomfortable in a way that was not interesting to them, which was frustrating to me as a dramaturg. So I'm curious, and I think part of that is also because Spanish has a different weight in this country, I think, than Bangla does, for instance, for a number of reasons. Totally, of course. So I'm curious about how you massage the place so that an audience would feel unsettled when needed and comfortable when needed. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to give a shout and out cause, to... Because you sometimes use subtitles, super titles, and sometimes not also. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. And, you know, that tradition of sort of bilingual theater in, in Spanish and English is the womb from which I come in that all of my, my mentor, Cherie Morago, was the one who first encouraged me to write in my mother tongue. And I think it took me 20 years to sort of heed that um, encouragement. I thought a lot about whether or not the play, sort of the intention behind the play was to sort of make evident when certain audience members had a particular kind of access and when they didn't, whether it was going to be sort of like written into the dramaturgy of the play that this moment was like specifically for Bangla speaking audience members and not for Anglo audience members. Or, But I decided sort of early on that 
I wasn't actually like, I was like, this is a thing that we see in cinema all the time. Really, I'm just trying to write a, you know, subtitled foreign language film, but it's a, but it's a play in the sense that I didn't want to sort of point at the ways in which the play was bilingual. I just wanted to write the play in precisely the languages that would naturally be spoken by these characters over the course of the 10 days that they are there. And then once I had done that, I didn't write the play with translation at first. I just wrote it in Bangla and English as it would be. And then I made some subtle decisions around when we would be subtitling and when we wouldn't be subtitling, not to sort of make any kind of commentary about like deliberately alienating or inviting certain audience members into that moment, but more to sort of craft which scene was from which character's point of view. So, you know, we have Rahim, who is the Black American boyfriend who arrives in Calcutta. It felt important to me that there were certain scenes in which the non-Bangla speaking audience members were having his experience of the play because that's what the scene was about his experience. Right. And also for a non-Bangla speaker, he's kind of our proxy. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Because also I think part of what's wonderful about the play is that you don't know when a non-Bangla speaking audience will respond to a moment. It's not necessarily in the translation, right? I think that's a discovery for the audience of being like that moment when they were speaking Bangla to each other and I didn't know exactly what they said really moved me. A hundred percent. Yeah. Or I totally understood it, even though I didn't get the words, I totally got it. And there's a kind of alchemy in the audience itself because every audience has some Bangla speaking audience members and some non-Bangla speaking audience members. So there is a kind of like attention that is happening where audiences, you know, like based on their fluency, they are sort of like digesting and receiving information at different tempos. And so that delay or that sense of coming to an understanding at a different time than another audience member is this sort of like beautiful rhythm that I'm always cognizant of in the audience. So what advice would you have for playwrights who want to write a bilingual play or trilingual or whatever, not just one language, but are are feeling nervous about it? At this point in the sort of like life of the American theater, I wouldn't worry so much about the sort of like audience and access questions because I do think like I'm like we're living in the sort of like as far as film is concerned, we're living in the era of Minari. And, you know, like there is like a sense of the expansiveness of what it means to tell an American story in multiple languages. The risk is actually, for me at least, has more to do with like sort of like pulling our punches and not being as sort of like rigorous about how authentically we write in the languages that we want to write in an effort to sort of like quote unquote, make accessible. Um, I think it is always possible to make a thing that is written in any number of languages accessible. I'm thinking about like the way that subtitles were used in Pachinko, the HBO series, and there were different colors for Korean and for Japanese, and that we were dealing with a story that had to do with like Korean folks in Japan, and that that like very complicated linguistic geography was sort of crucial to the storytelling. And I think we can do all of that now, as long as we are sort of attentive to all of those different registers of speaking, how a 
how different a Bangla that is spoken by someone who moved to the States at a particular age is from the Bangla that is spoken by uh, somebody who was schooled in a Bangla medium school versus an English medium school, just sort of like acknowledging the fact that like every single character in a play speaks a different language, That's even right. if it's just an English speaking play and that we are as sort of like open to that in our, we're not just sort of like, oh, it's a bilingual play. So there's Bangla and English. Um, there are just as many languages in, uh, there's like seven different languages in public obscenities, and even more by virtue of how many characters and how many different codes they speak in. As you know, so much has been written about the crisis that American theater is facing, especially not so much in New York, but I think particularly in regional theaters and in smaller towns. You're creating, as an artist, you've been creating unconventional, fascinating fare, including musicals. Yeah, You do a lot of collaborations. As you survey the field, what's your prognosis for your own prospects within it and what what do you think theaters around the country need to get paying audiences to return i think i can answer it from my own point of view around making this piece i think that it was a real revelation to me that what what seemed like an enormous risk in terms of payoff for an off-Broadway theater. Public obscenities is in many ways like really far from what people think of as a Soho rep production. It is a three hour long play with a 15 minute intermission. It is a kind of patient, naturalistic piece of theater. It's a bilingual play with a massive cast. It's certainly not the kind of production that uh, anyone who is trying to sort of like play it safe in terms of how their audiences would receive uh, a piece of theater in the 2022-2023 season. It's not a play that anyone would have sort of uh, in their right mind chosen (laughs) um, to do. And it was just, you know, and then it has been such a like runaway hit in terms of like bringing audiences to the theater and sort of expanding the scope of the theater's audience. That is not a thing that I had. I I had, I was completely like, I I thought that that was never going to happen. I was the (laughs) one that was like, I had less faith than the folks that Soho Rep did in some ways. I was like, you're not bringing, you know, these Bangalese from Kensington and like Jackson Heights out to, you know, downtown Manhattan to come and see this play in your 65 seat theater. And I guess the sort of the takeaway from the play, how the play took off um, is that I think that there is a kind of hunger for, I mean, I think there is a hunger for like, I think we do need to cultivate new audiences and, make work that invites a kind of like invites folks to our theaters who haven't felt welcomed into those theaters before, certainly. And then as an artist, I think it also does have to do with a, how do I say this? A attention to audiences. It's certainly that's how I operate. And I think that is my director's training speaking and that I, that I am, I always think of myself as an audience proxy I'm certainly stretching certain certainly stretching audiences with what I'm doing in the play but I think I'm also it it feels important to me that like 
as an artist, I'm thinking about how what I am making is really sort of like pulling audiences towards the work rather than sort of like delivering a certain kind of thesis out that that I that I don't feel that I don't feel I have that I don't have any answers as an artist that I'm not trying to sort of like teach that I, that I have some sort of like anointed wisdom that I'm trying to deliver through my work to audiences it feels important to me that like that I approach audiences with a certain kind of humility and I have found that like with this particular project there's a kind of whether or not folks like the work my hope is that they don't feel sort of like preached to, um, that there's a kind of openness to, there's an invitation inside of the work that has been bringing folks to the theater. And I know I'm not sort of answering the sort of like grand sort of like institutional questions through <laughs> that, but it's a thing that I, uh, that I'm able to sort of like think about on a small scale, um, a little bit more practically. The big thing that I would say is like, like, I don't think we are going to revitalize the theater by playing it safe. I think that if anyone is going to come back to the theater now that is that have never been a theater goer or that has sort of like left their sort of like theater going behind pre-pandemic, those folks are going to come back because there's something that they have never seen before that is being offered to them. That's what I think, at least. I mean, uh, but I'm, I'm not the one who's holding the reins. You've also taught young theater artists in the past. How would you prepare a student to be a theater artist in America today? It's a strange moment for young artists coming up. I think a lot about young artists of color, young queer artists who may feel as though, and I have felt this in myself, that there are certain expectations that are projected onto them around who they are supposed to be as an artist and what they are supposed to make. There's a sort of like ethical burden that sometimes marginalized or minoritarian uh, sort of young artists are asked to shoulder sort of right being more being a standard bearer yes and to sort of like be doing some kind of like political labor with a capital p or like that they are constantly working on behalf of that i find to be a, a stifling sensibility we are always for better or for worse speaking on behalf of when we come from communities that haven't been represented in the sort of cultural landscape as as much as as others but i think you know if we are challenging ourselves in the work that we are making and challenging our communities that is actually like had i been afraid of like what narrative i was projecting about the bangali universe to American audiences when I was writing Public Obscenities, I never would have written this particular play. And I think that it has been heartening to sort of discover that through that sort of age old, you know, specificity is universality kind of approach to things, um, showing rather than telling, for lack of a better phrase, there's all kinds of uncomfortable stuff that I'm talking about in public obscenities that certainly I was worried Bengali audience members might be like, 
how dare you like this is the first like Bangla language play that is premiering at this scale on a professional American and you're stage. showing like, it to American audiences. What are you exactly. saying about us, kind of thing, right? Yeah, and that just hasn't been the experience, even though the content of it could certainly have elicited that kind of reaction. And I think that has to do with that kind of subtle listening and paying attention that is what sort of animates that that content in the play. It's not that I'm trying to change anyone's mind, both within the community or without the community. I'm not trying to like, I have, I actually have no idea what I want any of my audience members to feel about, you know, a queer person or a Bangali a Bangla speaking person or a queer Bangali person. That isn't the animating. That's not what's the engine inside of the play. And I think that I would just encourage young artists to sort of like listen to themselves and sort of like trust that that listening will sort of like lead them towards something that allows their audience to listen more effectively than sort of like worrying about like I, I get I, I ask I get asked a lot like what do you want the audience to take away and that question always sort of befuddles me because I mean I have sort of like ineffable answers to that question around what I want the audience to take away um, but I don't think it's ever what we imagine you know I think if we're thinking too hard about like this is how I want my audience to feel about me or about this character or this character that is a proxy of me or my people or my community, then that character will just flatten in a way that won't serve that sort of relationship that we're trying to build between the work and an audience. I guess that's what I would say. If you'd like to read a longer written version of the interview and learn more about Misha, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified as soon as our next episode goes live. Oh, and ratings and reviews really help us reach new listeners. So if you have a second, we'd so appreciate it. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti. And on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.